Thank you, Shaneen. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, I forgot to wear green, but I do have my favorite Irish joke. I've been to Ireland twice. St. Patrick is, of course, very famous there. Um, and he's famous for driving the snakes. There's no snakes in Ireland, nothing indigenous there. And so their favorite St. Patrick's joke is when you ask them, why did uh, St. Patrick drive the snakes out of Ireland? He says, because he couldn't afford any airplane tickets. So that's the joke. So that, that's about as funny as it is as well. What was your favorite toy growing up? Each generation had a brand or a toy that was their favorite. Um, how many of you remember Lincoln Logs? Anybody Lincoln Logs? Sure, your age there, yeah. Tinker Toys. Anybody play with Tinker Toys? There we go. Etch-a-Sketch. How about Etch-a-Sketch? Yeah, anybody Etch-a-Sketch? Uh, some of the favorite. Rock'em Sock'em Robots was my brother and I's favorite. Love those. Anybody play Rock'em Sock'em Robots? How about Legos? How many of you need Legos? Still, Legos are a big deal, right? <laughs> right now, my four-year-old granddaughter, Willow, is into LOLs. Anybody know what LOLs are? Or Hatchables? Oh, yeah, little bitty dolls that you break open eggs. And I've played with those for hours and hours of my life, and it's all been worth it. But my son's, my boy's favorite toy was Transformers. Anybody remember Transformers? First, they were um, this famous uh, 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 cartoon, uh, a comic book. They were famous heroes. And then they were these uh, great toys that made one of the most uh, popular toys that Hasbro ever made. And then there became now this whole series of movies. But Transformers, and it would be this, this just simple car, like this is Bumblebee, a, a little car or a, a truck or something that was just kind of normal and ordinary. And then because they were, had superpower and they were aliens, they would transform into this incredible, uh, powerful robot fighting machine that could talk and had intelligence. Uh, and it's been one of the most famous toys of all times. Well, why are we talking about Transformers this morning? Because as we look at our Grow Across Generations goal, if we look at building new buildings, Really, that's what all this is about. What is our ministry about? I'm the pastor of intergenerational ministry. What's our goal? Is it to get as many kids as we can packed into the A&M house? Is it to be the biggest youth group in Amarillo? Or is it to have the most kids go to a ski trip? Or is it to have the best children's program? Uh, is it to be uh, you know, the coolest youth group in town? Or, or any of those things? Have the nicest uh, youth house? No, it's none of those things. It's not any of those things. Our goal is that kids would be transformed. That they would go from their ordinary middle school or high school life or college kid and not be like the rest of the world and not be a statistic and not have the scars and the failure. That they would be transformed. They wouldn't conform to the world, be transformed into something magnificent, spectacular, radical young person for Jesus. That's the goal of all this. That's the goal of our money. That's the goal of this church is that we're building disciples for Christ. Paul says it like this. Uh, he says what our goal is, of course, very clearly than anybody. If you'll turn uh, page 1205 in your pew Bible or in your Bible, Romans 12, 1 through 8. Let's look at what the goal of our church is, the goal of these programs, these campaigns. Be reminded of what this is all about. Romans 12, 1 through 8. Listen to the goal for every believer. 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then here's that powerful word. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we are many members, the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ to the, according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. So that word there, transform, in the Greek, and I don't quote Greek very often because I barely made it through, but the word is metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis, to, to, to be, meta, to, as John Orp said, we shall all be, one day we shall all be morphed, that our goal is that kids, young people, that our children, that the next generation would grow up to be transformed, to be Christ-like, not just saved and stuck, not just entertained, not just church as a side thought, but they would be radical for Jesus that their lives will be transformed permanently. C.S. Lewis says that what we're to be about as a church, he says it in this quote from The Weight of Glory. Listen to this. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that, that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in nightmares. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to be one or the other of these destinations. Are we helping young people? Are we helping our children to be immortal horrors or everlasting splendors? What is the goal of ministry? What is the goal of our money? What is the goal of our church? So how do we do that? Let's be practical. How do we help the upcoming generations be transformed? Let's look at Luke 2, 41 through 51. Let's go and look at what happened to Jesus when he was an adolescent. If you want to turn or read along with me, Luke 2, 41 through 51. This is a story about Jesus being a teenager. We don't know very hardly anything about Jesus as a child. The whole chapter covers 2 to 12 years, these silent years. The last thing we see is he's taken to Egypt as a two-year-old and then won't hear anything until he's 12. He's just growing up like a kid like anybody else. And then we get this little peak for just one second into him as an adolescent, and then we don't hear again until he's 33. So let's take a peek into how, how Jesus was transformed and, and, and what we can do as a church. If you would look at, at Luke 2, 41 to 51, it's a very great story. Verse 41. Now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom... And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Let me just read that again. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. When they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple. Now, now let's just stop right there. Have you ever lost a kid? Have you ever kind of like home alone, kind of forgotten a kid or maybe just kind of you didn't count that kid or, or forgotten them? I remember a youth minister telling me a story that he was taking three busloads of kids from Houston all the way to Colorado Winter Park to ski. And they stopped early in the morning in the flat plains of Lamar, Colorado. They, they had breakfast. They all got back in the bus and they took off. About an hour and a half later, there was a highway, highway patrol chasing them, lights going off, flashing. I thought our bus drivers, you know, they, he thought the bus drivers has broken the speed limit. Bus driver pulls over, highway patrolman comes up, opens the door, says, Who's in charge? 
youth minister says, I am. He says, are you missing anything? He says, no, sir. He goes, how about this 15-year-old <laughs> that you left in Lamar, Colorado? That's, that's losing a kid. Well, I want, what about if you lost Jesus? What kind of parenting is this? This seems a little, little but poor parenting. Like, this is a CPS matter. They lost Jesus. Not for one, imagine, your, imagine your 12-year-old. You couldn't find him for a day. How about three days? What's up, what's up with these parents? There's a woman that just got arrested for leaving five kids from 12 to 6 down to an infant in a crib. She left them for a week, went on vacation, left them in the house. She got arrested. What's going on with Mary and Joseph? Is this bad parenting? Well, there's three, four things, I think three things here that we can kind of learn about this story if we look deeper. They kind of help us with what is our responsibility for the next generation. First of all, let's just talk about what it means to be 12 years old then and 12 years old now. It's very different. A 12-year-old, Jesus was the eldest brother. He had brothers and sisters. It's there in the Bible. He's the oldest. This entire village, this whole family from Nazareth is walking days to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage for the Passover. So it's an entire community moving together like the old wagon trains of the West. And they're going to Jerusalem. And they're about a day into it. And they're like, um, okay, where's your brother? I don't know. He's not my, I don't know. And where's your brother? Nobody knows. And so they start to be concerned. And they've lost Jesus. But understand that he's 12. In the Jewish culture, in the agrarian culture, 12 meant you were a young man. You had your bar mitzvah. You were, you had been, you're ready to be a young man. You go right into work. Some, you got married in your teen years. This is not abnormal for that culture. It's abnormal for our culture. The Western culture, after the GI, after World War II, we invented the word teenager. There's no such thing as a teenager in any other culture before our, the United States in the 1950s. There was adolescence, but nothing saying it's a teenager. We invented that whole idea of a teenager. And by the way, now, adolescence, as defined by sociologists, as defined by marketers, as defined by a lot of ministries and campus, adolescence is no longer 12 to 18. Adolescence is now defined in our society today as from 12 to 25 years old. They're called kidults. That is what's happening in our culture. So first of all, understand this would not be abnormal for that culture as it would for ours. The second thing besides the maturity of Jesus is understand there's a whole community traveling together. Where did they say they looked the first day that they couldn't find Jesus? Where did they go? It says they looked among the other family members. Then they looked among their acquaintances. And it was that kind of society, that kind of a village, Nazareth, where everyone took care of everyone else's kids. Everyone raised kids together. There was an intrinsic family there. And so they just figured he's over here with the Bar Jonah family or the Bar Simon family or over here with the Jews, that he's just with the community and they're taking care of him. Remember those days? And then when they can't find him, that's when they get panicked and go back to Jerusalem. I'm not sure how you grew up, but I grew up in a neighborhood over by Western Plateau. Man, if I got, if, somebody, if a parent saw me doing something, they grabbed me by the ear and walked me to my mom's house. And we just, we'd be gone and they'd let us go in the morning and we would just hang out till six at night. And then my mom would call, you know, Jimmy Evans' mom and say, hey, can you send Kim home? That's what my wife, uh, you know, she grew up in the 80s. She um, w- went to pa- Paramount Terrace. She remembers that she would walk home from Paramount Terrace a long way. But there were helping hands. Anybody remember the helping hands program from the 60s to the 90s? A police program that you put a helping hand sticker in your window. In any elementary school, any kid that was lost or was concerned about, they could go to the end of that family. That's been banned because it's not safe anymore. It used to be we raised our kids. We don't do that anymore. It's tough to be a parent. Kids are getting lost. It's so easy to get lost as a kid today. Mark, Mark Twain said this about teenagers. You can tell he liked kids. He said, when you have a kid, when they turn 12, 
put them in a barrel, put the lid on, and feed them through the hole. He says, when they turn about 16, plug up the hole. That, that's how generations used to feel about kids. Kids are getting lost today. It's easy for kids to get lost in our culture. Think about the fact that they are concerned about being shot in their school or shot in a church or 50 people being shot in a mosque in New Zealand. It's a different time. It's easy for kids to get lost today. Think about the same-sex confusion. Think about the lostness of that. Think about the choosing your own gender issue. Uh, that's a different thing, folks. Kids are, it's easy for kids to get lost in this culture. Think about the fact that not only is it a matter of abortion within the womb, but now even abortion outside of the womb. These are difficult, lost times for kids. The, the number one TV show, the most popular TV show, has taken marriage and made it a joke where one single man, a bachelor, dates 22 women, sometimes two at a time, to define, decide which one. They go on exotic trips, and most of the time they sleep together. And at the end, the whole country is watching to see who this guy is going to propose to, only to break up with her later. Out of 22 seasons of The Bachelor, guess how many marriages there are? Anybody? One. Maybe. This last season, the whole plot was to see if The Bachelor, who was a virgin, would lose his virginity. It's a dark time. It's a tough time. Kids are lost. I'm not judging what you watch. But these are different times. Kids are easily getting lost. 50%. If you took half of any youth group in Emerald, Texas, if you took half right here, you'd say this half will not be going to church a year from their graduation from high school. And by four years later, by, by the time they graduate or four years out of high school, only 10%. One out of ten will be going involved in church at all. It's a different time. 25% of all college faculty are atheists. Only 8% of the entire population of the United States is atheists. 25% of college faculty. 6% of college faculty believe the Bible is God's word. 25% of all millennials, when you ask them what to check what their denomination is or their belief, it says none. They're called nuns. 25%. This is a different time to raise kids. Kids are getting lost in our, in our culture. They're dying without Jesus. It's a serious epidemic. Don't say kids will be kids. These kids are different. It's not kids will be kids. Kids will be in trouble. They'll be lost. The good news is the parents, even though they don't believe it, are still the primary influence in a young person's life. In an adolescence, in, a, in, a, in an elementary school, middle school, the parents are still the number one influence. But they need more Someone wrote a book called It Takes a Village. No, it takes a church. People said the healthiest kids in a society, the healthiest in a culture, are where there's about five different adults around each kid. A Christian coach, a Christian teacher like Matt or Sarah Klein, a Christian coach like Kurt Lester, a, a grandparent, a neighbor, a Sunday school teacher, a friend. Kids are getting lost and they need, it takes a church, folks. It's not just somebody else's responsibility. It takes a church to be transformed. Not the bumper sticker mentality that I saw the other day on an RV that says, we're spending our children's inheritance. inheritance. That's not funny. Not the generation that says, I'm done raising my kids. It's somebody else's time. No, we're responsible as a church for the next generation. It's not just my job. It's our job. And what happens when a whole church pours into the next generation and cares more about them than themselves? Well, what happened to Jesus? The end of that story is, look, they found him in the temple. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. (laughs) And it says he grew in wisdom and stature. Hell is coming. Tough times are coming. 
when Amarillo kids leave the Amarillo Bible Belt, good old boy Western culture, and go off to the world, they're going to get the crap kicked out of them. Excuse my language. It's going to be tough. Will they make it? Will they grow like Jesus in wisdom and stature? Will they be transformed? It's up to us. God using us. So what happens when we as a church pour into the next generations? They grow mature. They get mature in Christ. Paul says it this way, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. This is what our goal is. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Our goal is that kids would survive adolescence, survive emergent adulthood, and be followers of Jesus and change their world. Not that they would just be good kids or church kids or sober virgins. That's not our goal. That won't save them. That won't change the world. Man, I don't know where you were on the Wednesday of wind uh, where trampolines turned into tumbleweeds. I've grown up in this. I've never, I'm sitting in my car at an intersection, and I'm getting <laughs> car sick. Seasick. I drive from my wife's office right in her up Elwood from her shop to the church and giant trees in Elwood Park that have been there 100 years are down. And you look at the, any of those trees, trees in my yard, they're down. The roots were dead. The roots weren't very deep. And when the storms blew, the trees without roots, man, they ripped up. Telephone poles, power poles don't have roots. That's why they're laying all over Sansi and people have been without electricity. Our kids are going to be like that. They need to have roots, not just be saved, not just be entertained, not just be bought off, not just be, have money spent on them. They need roots in Jesus Christ because the winds are going to blow. It's going to be tough out there. We've got to help them get roots. We don't care just they're involved now. What about five years from now? What about 10 years from now? What about 30 years from now? I've been in youth ministry and working with young people for 45 years. Every once in a while I get one of these great messages. I got a text from Libba. I met Libba when I was right out of the University of Texas, 25 years old. I was doing ministry, doing life ministry. She was a sophomore. She just texted me. She said, I just want you to know, uh, I am a deaconess at our church, and I am the leader of CBS Bible study in our community. And we're studying Nehemiah. And the question was asked, where did you get your roots? Where did you start growing Christ? And I wanted to thank you, Kim Talley, and you, Sarah, and you, Marley, for pouring into my life in 1977, because I'm walking with Christ now. We need more Libas out there. Not just kids that had a flash in the pan when they were in high school and went to all the trips and went to Canuck and Hidden Falls and this camp. And that. We need kids that have deep roots. They start there. Hebrews says it like this. Therefore, let us leave behind the elementary doctrines of Christ. Being saved is not enough. It's not just the goal. Fire insurance. Get your ATM card. Get, your, get out a hell-free card. That's not enough. That's not the goal. The goal is to go on to maturity. A five-month baby, my, my uh, stepson, Shep, when he's five, he's drooling. Five months, he, he's crawling. He can't speak. We have to feed him. We have to change his diaper. He's precious at five months. If he's still doing that at five years, something's seriously wrong. If he's doing that when he's 15, we've got a problem. God bless him. We don't want infant Christians. You can't be an infant Christian and not grow in Christ. We want kids that are mature in Christ. So what do we do? What do the next generations need the church to provide to help them be transformed? What is our job, church, as we take care, as we, as we become a church? Three things at least. The first one is, is simple, as has been said. Prayer is not the least. It's the most we can do. Will you pray for young people instead of being irritated by them, instead of worrying about their politics, instead of worrying about their tattoos or their nose piercing or their music? Would you pray for kids? 
prayed that they would know Jesus and prayed that they would have roots, that they would survive this culture that is doing everything it can to derail them. When you drive by an elementary school, would you pray for that school? When you drive by a middle school, would you walk around a high school, would you pray for those students? They are in trouble, and you don't even know how bad it is. And I'm not trying to be sensationalist. We live it every day. Would you pray for each kid? Instead of being irritated that they left all their food at McDonald's and they didn't pay, would you pray for those kids when they're driving poorly in front of you? When they're ir- Would you pray for kids? Pray for our young people. And then pray about your gifts, as Paul said. Pray about your job. Pray about what God is saying that you, what gift do you have? Are you a teacher? Are you an exhorter? Are you a giver? Are, are, you, are you a service person? What does God want you to do about the next generations? Because he holds us accountable. We are the agent that helps parents raise their kids. What does God want you to do? That's between you and God. They need prayer. The second thing they need is they need people. goes along with it. Where does God want you to be a part of helping us raise kids up to be mature in Christ, to survive, to be the future leaders of not just our community but of our, our spiritual world? We need people like Hugh Hagen. Hugh Hagen's in a very different part of his life right now. He's widowed. He's not just thinking about himself and just worried about it and feeling sorry for himself. He leads a, a Gen X Bible study on Wednesday nights with Gen Xers. <clears throat> when Emma Keister went to Emerald High as a ninth grader, she didn't know kind of where she would fit in. Her sisters were this or that. She wasn't big enough to play volleyball. She wasn't strong enough to play basketball. She didn't know where she fit in. But someone said, why don't you try swimming? So she went to Hugh Hagen, who's a swim teacher. And he saw her swim. He says, you're a natural, you're a natural swimmer. You can do this. I'm just going to show you how to swim fast. And he patiently, without him getting paid, taught her how to swim. And then when she went and tried out for the Emerald High swim team, he's there in the crowd, and she makes the team. We need Hugh Higgins. We need people like Rita Long, who take young women to Ireland to minister to lost people there. We need Scott Gilmore's and Denise Carr's and Yvonne Murphy's working in our elementary school. We need people like Chuck and... and <clears throat> Chuck and Millie Alexander, who take uh, kids from Emerald uh, Children's Home. We need people to be hand-on-hand with kids. Jesus says, Behold, the fields are ripe for the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. Folks, grab, grab your hat. Grab your coat. Come help us. So not bes- only besides prayer and people, they need, they need places. This isn't a pitch for money. I don't do money pitches. I'm not good at it. I don't even like it. But we need places. We have one of the best children's program in, the, in Amarillo, best people, best staff. We have one of the worst facilities ever. It's not safe. It's old. It's not attractive. We, we, we spend thousands on our kids to do other things. Apparently, people are, are bribing people to get their kids in college. We can't pay for a facility to be fixed up. It's not safe. And when we pour money and spend time on places where kids are, young families, which is the future of our church, say they care about kids. That is a secure place for kids to go. Right now, it's not secure. When kids see an indoor playground, a place to play in this windy West Texas weather, children say, God is fun. God cares about me. They have a place for me. We need to show kids that we're not just going to stick them in some building, adolescent, middle school, and high school. We're not just going to stick them in some ugly room in the church because that house has been so overused and well used by thousands of kids over the years. We need a new place that won't fall down where we can actually have enough kids in there that can see the speaker. Sometimes we have 110 kids in there when we mix middle school and high school. Half of them can't see the speaker. We need a place that when the kids drive by, when teenagers drive by, they say, that church cares about young people. We need places for kids to be transformed. What is your role? 
What's God calling you to do? Kids need not just to be good, to be religious, to be great American kids. They need to be transformed or they won't make it. And we won't have a church. And this pew, the sanctuary will be worthless in 10 or 15 years if we don't invest people, prayer, and places. My favorite story about a teenager is a boy named Eustace. Eustace Scrub. He's 12 years old. C.S. Lewis talks about Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in his Chronicles of Narnia series. He says, Eustace Scrub and the Pevens' kids, Peter, Lucy, Edmund, Susan, they all are in a boat called the Dawn Treader with Reepy Cheap. Reepy Cheap is their leader. And they come to this island. They've heard there's, there's gold on this island. That a dragon has abandoned his lair and left mounds of gold and treasure and jewelry. When they land on the beach, when everyone's helping get the boats unloaded, selfish, greedy, self-centered, used to scrub, runs off up the hill to find the gold for himself. And he does, he finds it. He comes up to the dragon's lair, and there is this abandoned dragon's hoard of gold and crowns and jewelry. And he delights, and he stuffs it in his pockets, and he hides it. And he's not going to go back and say, it's all his. He takes the most beautiful gold bracelet, encrusted with diamonds, and he puts it on his arm. He puts a crown on his head. This is all mine. He finally falls asleep on the pile of dragon's gold. And when he wakes up in the morning, he hears a dragon's breath behind him. And he looks down and sees dragon hands. And he thinks the dragon is behind him. He's going to kill me. He starts to move. And when he moves, the dragon's hands moves. He feels a pain in his arm. He looks down and his arm has become a dragon's arm. And that bracelet is dug deep and is making him bleed. He realizes that... As C.S. Lewis says, when a greedy, selfish boy sleeps on a dragon's hoard, thinking dragon's thoughts, he will become a dragon. He rushes out of the cave and looks into a pool. He's become this horrible, giant dragon. He flies over where his friends are to tell them that he had help, and they shoot arrows at him, and they run away. He comes back, and it says he cries great dragon tears. And then that night, there he is, Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure approaches the dragon. And this giant dragon is afraid of this lion. And he realizes it's Aslan. And Eustace says, please turn me into a boy again. I can't do it. He says, you'll have to bathe first. And Aslan leads him up to a secret garden, a secret pool, beautiful, clear, cream, crystal pool. And he starts to get in. He says, no, Eustace, first you have to undress. Well, he's a dragon. How can I undress? But he remembers that like a, a snake, the dragons must shed their skin. So he works and pulls and tears off that first layer of skin. And he throws it down. And he looks and he's still a dragon. He tears and rips and pulls again and throws off a second layer of skin. And behold, he's still a dragon. A third time, he rips and pull, pulls and tears and takes another layer off skin. And alas, he's still a dragon. He says, I can't do it. And I says, no, you can't. I'll have to undress you. Lay down. This will hurt. And as Eustace lays down the dragon, he takes his dragon and digs deep, deep into his skin, almost piercing his heart. And he rips and he pulls and it hurts. It's thick and it's dark and it's bloody. And he finally rips off his old skin and throws it down. And he picks up Eustace and throws him in the pool. And Eustace says, heal. The pain goes away. He's a new boy. And he steps out of the water. Aslan says, now let me dress you. The cure has begun. Friends, we need to help kids be themselves be who God intended them to be, to be transformed, to be new creatures in Christ. It takes a church. Are you in? We'll be part of that. God bless you.